all you have. We would be honored if you would join us. What's up, Far Far Away family? How is everyone doing today? We hope all is well on your side of the galaxy. It has been crazy out here in the Outer Rim. Stormtroopers are patrolling and Old Ben Kenobi is still in hiding. Hell, Dark Grogu. Sorry about that. Just a little special moment I'm having. A lot of things are going on right now. So sometimes you just got to shout out some crazy stuff. Release some of that pressure. Let me apologize for the tardiness of the show this week. Like I said, there's been a lot going on. My little brother's in the hospital with COVID. So we are trying to find out a way that we can help. Because I have never felt so helpless in my life. And I know there's a lot of people in the world that feel the same way. There was literally nothing I could do. Just sit back and wait and see if he pulls through. But it also caused me to think that I'm not the only person going through this. And talking with some of the healthcare people that are helping him, they are the true Jedis in this pandemic. They are putting their lives on the line every day just to help people that they don't even know. Other people in this world. So I talked with my team over the weekend and we decided that we're not just going to sit around playing with our lightsaber. We're going to do something to help. So we reached out to some people and tried to find out how we could help. And we found a charity that we think that is doing it the right way. Project Hope. Project Hope has mounted a global response to help slow the spread of COVID-19. Now, what made this charity stand out in the crowd? What made them different from all the rest? Well, honestly, it is because the money goes to help our frontline healthcare work. It gets them the training and the supplies they need to stay safe so they can keep helping everyone else. From now until the end of this dang pandemic, we are giving 100% of our Kofi to Project Hope. When you go and buy us a coffee on the Kofi website, instead of using that money for that wonderful cup of black gold that helps keep us awake to do these episodes, we're going to donate all of it to Project Hope. All 100% will go directly to them to help fight this Dark Lord Darth COVID. So that's what we have been working on. Something that we could do together to fight this Dark Lord. Because I know personally that these poor healthcare workers have a tough job. Now I don't know if it's the toughest job in the universe. I think whoever has to clean up the rank or poop in Java's palace has the toughest job in the galaxy. Just to think about it for a moment. Can you imagine how big that pile of crap must be? Oh my Darth Sidious. That's gotta be like, ugh. Okay, okay, I know I'm getting off topic. But I do think that that would be the toughest job ever. That's another subject for another podcast. Now let's get back to Darth Bane. Because in the last episode, Chancellor Valorum just told Farfalla that the Jedi needed to give up their military position. And Bane just rolled a dragon into space. Not kidding, he rolled a dragon from Duxon to Onderon. So let's see if he made it or did he die in the vacuum of space. The sound of the Starwake's autonap update jarred Xana awake from a restless slumber. She had curled herself awkwardly into the pilot's chair, and now her neck was stiff from sleeping in an uncomfortable position. There were plenty of places to lie down and stretch up properly in the cargo hold at the back, but Xana couldn't sleep in there, not with all the bodies. She had removed Wend and Ritana from the cockpit in the first few minutes after their deaths. It had been a struggle getting Wend out of his chair, but her adrenaline levels had still been high from the confrontation with Ertana, and she had managed to drag him down the hall to the cargo hold where his father and brother lay. Relocating Ertana had been more difficult. She had a soldier's physique, lean and muscular, and easily weighed twice what Xana did. At first, the girl hadn't even been able to budge the corpse. By the time she realized she would have to call upon the force to aid her, the excitement of the moment was gone. In the aftermath, she'd found it much more difficult to summon the dark side. Each time she tried to draw upon her inner anger, 
her conscience had fought against her. Instead of the familiar heat of power, she'd felt only guilt and doubt. Images of Bordon and his sons lying side by side on the cargo room's floor had clouded her thoughts, making it difficult for her to concentrate. Zana had tried to block the images and allow the dark side to flow through her, but she'd been only partly successful. In the end, she had relied more on determination and sweat than the power of the Force. Grunting and straining, she had eventually managed to drag her Tana for half a meter before having to stop and catch her breath. She had repeated the process again and again, slowly pulling the body down the ship's corridor until her Tana lay beside the others. There had been very little blood. Apart from the first glancing shot to Bordon's gut, all the wounds had been cauterized by the heat of the blaster bolts. Yet the lack of gore had done nothing to make the body's appearance any less unsettling. Their lifeless eyes had stared up at nothing, compelling Xana to bend forward and close the lids, her hand trembling as she brushed against the clammy skin. Still not satisfied, she'd hunted around until she found several large blankets to drape over the corpses. Even under the sheets, the profiles of her victims were still somewhat recognizable, but there was nothing more she could do about that. She had only come back to the cargo hold one other time since then, grabbing as many ration kits as she could carry and taking them up to the front, trying not to look at the shrouded bodies at her feet. In the ensuing seven days, she had been both praying for and dreading an end to her journey when she would be reunited with her master and begin her training in the ways of the Sith. She never left the cockpit except to use the ship's refresher. Whenever she tried to sleep, she could never manage more than a fitful doze plagued with nightmares in which she relived her killing spree over and over. Each time she woke, she would tear open a ration kit and pick at the food, her body slowly replenishing what it had lost during her weeks on Rusan but the rations were meant for a full-grown adult, and she could never finish them. When she was done, she would toss the uneaten portion, along with the container, down the hall toward the cargo hold. After a few days, the smells of a dozen half-finished meals began to mingle into a sickly sweet aroma that hung like a thin curtain in the air. Zana actually welcomed the cloying scent of rotting food. It covered up the mounting stench of the decaying bodies in the back. To fight the boredom, she tried to imagine what her future would be like as Bane's apprentice. She would focus on everything he'd promised her. The ability to call upon and command the Force at will. The mysterious secrets of the Dark Side. The power to reach her true potential and fulfill her destiny. Her mind, however, kept returning to the Starwick's dead crew. And each time it happened, she wondered what her master would think about such weakness. The autonav chimed again. Xana glanced at the readout. The ship would be entering atmosphere in five minutes. She was being prompted to select landing coordinates. Xana sat up straight in the pilot's chair, furrowing her brow as she studied the on-screen display. She'd been hoping that the automated systems that had carried the vessel from Rusan to Onderon would also be programmed to land. Unfortunately, it seemed that task now fell to her, and she had no idea how to bring the ship down safely. She punched a button on the screen labeled Landing Zones, 
A long list of unfamiliar locations and coordinates began to scroll across the display. She had no clue what any of the numbers meant, and no idea how to select one anyway. As she stared at the readout, they were entering atmosphere now. Xana felt the familiar bump of turbulence. Caught between frustration and panic, she reached out and began randomly poking buttons. She stopped only when the autonav beeped twice. Destination accepted. Heaving a sigh of relief, she collapsed back into her seat and buckled up for touchdown. She tried to peer over the console to get a view through the cockpit window of where she was headed, but she was too short to see clearly. All she could make out was kilometers of thick green canopy stretching out in every direction. Evidently, she had selected a landing zone in a less civilized part of the world. A sobering question crossed her mind. Does the autopilot know how to land in the middle of a forest? Or will it smash me to bits against the treetops? As of reading her thoughts, the autonav chimed angrily. Xana read the update. Suboptimal conditions detected at selected landing zone. Seeking nearest available alternative site. She felt the ship bank slightly, veering and leveling off to skim the forest in search of a large enough clearing to land in. Alternative landing zone located. The screen assured her a few moments later, and she felt the nose dip as the vessel began her final descent. She heard a loud bang, and the heavy staccato pounding of branches striking the exterior of the hull as the Starwake plowed through a thin layer of branches en route to her chosen destination on the surface. A second later, the ship rocked hard to one side, deflecting off a tree trunk too thick to smash through. Next came a series of heavy, jarring thumps as the ship skipped and skidded across the ground before finally coming to a stop. Okay, at least this chapter starts off with some excitement. It wasn't like the last chapter where I fell asleep two or three times in the first five minutes. It begins with Xana trying to move Wynn and Ertana's body to the cargo hold, which was hard for a young girl to do. And she had used up all her force connection earlier, so the force wasn't going to help her. She had to do it the old-fashioned way. I'm still trying to picture this child dragging a full-grown corpse. I really don't know how she did it. Even after she got them back there, she couldn't get the image of their bodies out of her head. So she didn't go back in the back where they lay. She just bought a whole bunch of food up to the cockpit. But she couldn't eat the whole portions in one serving. So she threw the leftovers in the back of the cockpit. And now it smells like death and spoiled food. But that wasn't the only problem she faced. The ship was coming up on Onderon and she didn't know how to land the ship. The alarm started going off so she just started pushing buttons. And she gets very lucky because she manages to set the autopilot to land. And the autopilot somewhat lands the craft, well, crashes without killing Shaken but uninjured, Xana undid her safety harness and opened the exit hatch. As she descended the vessel's loading ramp, she noticed she was on one end of a large clearing that had been carved from the forest to create a circle nearly 200 meters in diameter. Much to her surprise, someone was in the middle of the clearing, waving her over. Whoever's flying that ship of yours must be the worst pilot in the galaxy the man said, eyeing her up and down as she approached him and stopped a few meters away. He looked to be in his late twenties, though it was hard to tell because of his scrawny and somewhat scraggly appearance. His long, copper-colored hair was full of mats and tangles, and his red beard was patchy and uneven across his grimy face. He wore loose pants and a torn shirt that might have been white beneath the mud and other unidentifiable stains. Over the shirt he wore a short leather vest that was fraying at the edges, 
and a pair of heavily scuffed boots. He gave off a sour odor. What's the matter, girly? He asked. You don't speak basic? I said whoever's flying your ship is the worst pilot I ever saw. Nobody's flying it. Zana answered carefully, glancing back at the ship that was now a good thirty meters behind her. She was set on auto. That explains it, he said with a nod. Auto's only good at landing on a permacrete runway. Not worth bad the poodoo out here. The man took a step toward her, and Zana instinctively took a step back. There was something very wrong about finding this man, waiting for her at the heart of a clearing in the middle of the forest. But she wasn't worried about the strangeness of the situation. Instead, her mind was desperately trying to think of a way to keep him from discovering the bodies in the Starwig's cargo hold. Why are you using the autopilot out here, girly? You don't got a pilot on that ship with you? Xana shook her head. No, there's nobody else on board, just me. Just you, he said with an arched eyebrow. You sure about that? I stole it, she said defiantly. Maybe if she could convince him she had been alone on the vessel, he wouldn't go in and find the bodies. The man let out a low chuckle. <laughs> Stole it, you say? Then, in a louder voice, he called out. Looks like we got ourselves a thief! A dozen men and women stepped out from the thick trees on the edges of the wide clearing the Starwick had landed in. They were all human, and most of them seemed to be about the same age as the redhead Xana had first spoken with. Like him, they were clad in a motley assortment of soiled, ragged clothing. Several of the new arrivals had appeared from behind the redhead, but more than a few had emerged from the trees on the other side of the clearing, behind Xana, effectively cutting her off from her ship. And unlike the man who had first greeted her, the newcomers were all armed with vibroblades or blaster rifles. How? How did you find me? She demanded, glancing from side to side as she began to realize she was surrounded. Scout saw your ship flying over our territory, the redhead answered. Figured if you were looking for a place to touch down, you'd end up here on our landing pad. Landing pad? Xana repeated in surprise momentarily distracted from a dangerous situation. You made this place so ships could land here? Who said anything about ships? The man answered with a sly grin. He put two fingers to his lips and gave a sharp whistle so loud and shrill it made Xana wince. The air above was filled with the sound of a great roaring wind, and a dark shadow blotted out the sun. Xana looked up in amazement as four enormous winged reptiles swooped down from the sky to land on the far side of the clearing. The creatures were outfitted with bridle and reins, and each wore a large saddle on its back that looked big enough to carry up the three people at once. You're beast riders, she gasped, remembering Tallow's warning when she'd first mentioned Onderon. Skelda clan, the man said. And like I already told you, you're in our territory. I'm, I'm sorry, Xana said. I didn't know. The man shrugged. Doesn't matter if you knew or not. You want to use a Skelda clan landing pad, you gotta pay us for the privilege. From the corner of her eye, Xana noticed his companion slowly drawing in tighter around her. 
I don't have any money, she said, taking a half-step backward. That's okay, the man replied nonchalantly. We'll just take your ship. Xana spun on her heel and tried to run for the forest as the man lunged for her. He'd been expecting her to make a break for it, and he was quick. He was on her after only a few steps, tackling her from behind. He knocked her to the ground, his weight slamming her to the hard dirt. And the next instant, he was flying backward through the air. He hit the ground with a hard grunt, the wind knocked out of him as he landed on his side five meters away. Xana scrambled back to her feet. The other members of his clan had rushed forward when she started to run. Now, they all took a quick step back, weapons raised high above their heads. They were staring at her with wide-eyed expressions of fear and disbelief. She turned back to the leader when she heard him laughing. He picked himself up off the ground and winked at her. Looks like we got ourselves a little Jedi in training, he said, loud enough for his companions to hear. What brought you to Onderon, little Jedi? Decided to run away from your master? I'm not a Jedi, Xana said in a cold whisper. That's right, he agreed. You don't know how to control your power, do you? It only comes out when you're mad or afraid. Isn't that right? Xana clenched her jaw and narrowed her eyes but didn't say anything. Listen, little Jedi, he said, pulling a small blade from his boot and beginning to walk slowly toward her. There are twelve of us and only one of you. You really think you can take us all on? Maybe, Xana said, thrusting out her chin. What about them? He asked, tilting his head in the direction of the flying beasts as he continued his cautious advance. One command from any of us and the Drexels will rip your pretty little blonde head clean off your body. Do you really think your powers will be enough to stop them? No, Xana admitted. In the back of her mind, she felt something twitch, almost as if someone was calling out to her. It's time for you to give up, girly, the redhead told her with a cruel grin. He was only a few steps away from her now, his blade held out before him. You're all alone. Xana smiled back at him. No, I'm not. Okay, so Xana comes out of the ship to find some guy. He is just standing in the middle of this clearing. And her first instinct is to walk over to this guy and talk to him. Maybe her first lesson should have been stranger danger. I think Miss Xana might be a little overconfident in her ability. But the guy starts to question who is flying the ship. This is when she tells him that she's all alone and she stole the ship. So he yells out that she is a thief. And some more people come out of the woods. He tells her that she had landed on their landing pad. When she questions how it is a landing pad, he puts his fingers to his mouth and whistles. Okay, let me stop right there. Didn't it just describe him as being dirty? So he put his dirty fingers in his mouth? Oh, that's going to make me gag. That is so disgusting. But anyway, he whistles and some of those dragon things fly down and land in the clearing. This is when he tells Anna she has to pay to land there. When she says she has no money, things get interesting. She tries to run towards the force, but he tackles her. Then Xana uses the force to throw him off. This causes everyone to back up. Then the man gets up and calls her a little Jedi. Xana doesn't like this very much. And she uses our favorite Ahsoka saying, I am no Jedi. The man asks her does she think that she can kill all of them. She says maybe. Then he 
points to the Drexels. That's the name of the dragon thingy, whatever, them, the animals that they ride. You know what I mean. And asked, does she think that she could kill them? Xana answered with probably not. He says to her that she is all alone and there's no way for her to escape. This is when Xana feels a familiar presence and plainly explains she is not alone. As the words left her lips, a dark shadow fell across the two of them. The man had just enough time to look up before he was plucked from the ground by the swooping talons of a Drexel far larger than any of the four he'd called down earlier. It let loose a scream that shook the ground beneath Xana's feet as it arced back up toward the sky. Astride the great beast's neck sat the familiar figure of Darth Bane. The Drexel climbed to a height of 30 meters, then released its deadly grip on the red-headed man. His limp body plunged to the ground below, landing with a dull thud and the sharp crack of bones. The sight of their leader's mangled corpse dropping from the sky spurred the rest of the clan into action. With whooping cries and shrill whistles, they raced to their mounts to take the battle to the air. All thoughts of the little girl on the ground forgotten. The first Drexel off the ground had only two riders. The woman in front handled the reins, focusing all her attention and energy on the difficult task of steering and controlling the mount. The man seated behind her served as her eyes and strategist. Shouting out instructions, she followed without question. When to climb, when to dive, when to bank, and when to strike. The empty seat behind them was no doubt where the red-headed man would have sat had he not been killed. The remaining Drexels each carried a full complement of three riders, one to work the reins, one to give the orders, and one armed with a large blaster rifle. The bullets would have little effect against a Drexel's thick hide, but a well-placed shot could bring down an enemy rider from long range. However, the offensive advantage of the third rider was offset by the extra weight that made the mount slower and less maneuverable. With only two passengers, the first Drexel was able to quickly outdistance the others. It climbed into the clear blue sky where Bane and his new pet circled defiantly, issuing a challenge that could not be ignored. As this first opponent drew near, the Dark Lord's Flyer screamed its war cry and veered to intercept it. From the ground, Xana watched as the two Reptavians clashed, the beasts seeming to throw themselves at each other in midair. Grappling together, they plunged planetward in a short but savage confrontation. The two great bodies twisted and writhed against each other, buffeted by wings and slashed by claws that glinted in the sun. Tails lashed out, attempting to blind the enemy flyer or dislodge a rider. Jaws bit and snapped as the Drexel's oversized heads danced and weaved atop the serpentine necks. The Beast Riders had counted on their skill and experience in aerial combat to carry them to victory against a lone rider overwhelmed by the struggle to control a flyer by himself. They didn't realize that the Force gave Bane complete and total command of the creature. Without this advantage, their defeat was never in doubt. Bane's mount was larger and stronger. It carried the weight of a single rider and it had no reins, bridle, or saddle to encumber its movements. Less than 20 meters above the ground, Bane's Drexel twisted, ducked, and tore out the throat of its enemy. 10 meters above the ground, it disengaged from its foe, pulled out of the deadly freefall, and soared victoriously upward. The other Drexel 
mortally wounded, crashed to the dirt. A landing that killed the mount and both riders instantly. The entire sequence had taken less than 10 seconds. Yet it had allowed the other Skelder clan flyer teams to get high above their quarry, giving them a tactical advantage. With powerful flaps of its mighty wings, Bane's mount rose up to meet them. They responded with a barrage of blaster fire aimed at the mysterious lone rider, only to see the Sith Master ignite his lightsaber and deflect the incoming bolts. One of the enemy flyers swooped in toward him, a feint meant to draw Bane's attention from the other two. The beast dived past him, a few meters too distant to actually engage in combat, then banked away sharply as the rider yanked hard on the reins. As they flew by, Bane reached out with the force and ripped away the harness, securing the saddle to the Drexel's back. There was a trio of startled and then terrified screams as the saddle broke free and the riders plummeted hundreds of meters to the ground below. The mount, oblivious to their plight, continued to circle upward in preparation for another dive. Bane didn't take the time to revel in the fear of his fallen enemies. Before they even hit the ground, he'd turned his attention to the third opponent, unleashing a storm of Sith lightning that reduced the riders to ash and the Drexel into a hunk of charred and smoking flesh that dropped from the sky. With a single thought, Bane directed his mount's attention to the lone remaining flyer team. A tactical error on his part. For even though its riders had been slain, the second Drexel was still alive. Acting on primal instinct, it had veered back to attack the unfamiliar male invading its territory. The riderless Drexel slammed into Bane's flyer the exact instant he engaged the final team. The three beasts intertwined with one another, becoming a single screaming mass of flesh, claws, and teeth hurtling toward the ground below. A spray of hot, foamy blood splashed across Bane's face as the creatures ripped one another apart. For a brief instant, he glimpsed one of the other riders through the flailing wings and limbs of their mounts. Her features frozen as she realized they were all tumbling toward a gruesome and inescapable end. We love bringing you more Star Wars, and it is because of our partners that we can do this week after week. So we invite you to be one of those partners. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep this going. Your support will give us the ability to create future episodes, as well as provide you with the best sounding show on your playlist. And to express our appreciation, we will give you a shout out on our mid-series show that we do in the middle of every book. You will also be automatically entered in all future giveaways. All you have to do is go to the show notes and click that listener support link. Now let's get back to the show. Bane released his hold on the Drexel's mind and concentrated his awareness on the terror of the other three riders. He drank in their fear, using it to fuel his own emotions. He focused his power and channeled it through the Orbalisks, letting them gorge themselves on the dark side. In return, they pumped a fresh dose of adrenaline and hormones into his blood allowing him to generate even more power in a cycle he repeated over and over until the moment before impact. Xana saw the last three flying creatures lock onto one another. As they dropped from the sky, spiraling down faster and faster, she watched them, waiting for one to break free and mount back up to the heavens. None ever did. She screamed in horror as they all slammed into the ground together. The sound of the crash was like an explosion. 
The shockwave knocked Xana off her feet and launched a great cloud of dust and debris into the air. The cloud rolled quickly over the ground to envelop her. The would-be Sith apprentice struggled to rise, coughing and choking as small chunks of dirt and stone rained down on her. Through the haze, she stared in wonder at the 20-meter-wide, 2-meter-deep crater left behind. In the center was a gore-covered mountain of pulverized flesh. The individual bodies of mounts and riders compacted into a single, pulpy, quivering mass. And walking toward her from the carnage was the blood-soaked form of her master. He was limping and hunched over with one arm clutched at his side. Yet even through the obscuring dust, Xana recognized him immediately. She could only stare in utter disbelief as he drew nearer, his gait becoming more sure and steady with every stride. With each step he stood taller and straighter, and when he let his arm fall away from his side, her heart began to pound with excitement. Darth Bane was alive, and the power that had let him survive this incredible ordeal, the power of the dark side, would one day be hers to command. Overcome with emotion, she stepped forward to embrace her master, only to recoil when she saw the alien growth protruding from his chest. They are called Orvalisks, Bane said, offering an explanation rather than a greeting. Creatures that feed on the power of the dark side. Without them, I could never have survived what you just witnessed. He gasped faintly as he spoke, though whether from pain or the recent exertion of using the Force, or possibly both, she couldn't tell. He stopped in front of her, and Xana reached out slowly to touch the cold, hard shell. She pulled her hand back with a start when she felt it twitch beneath her fingers. They feel the power of the dark side within you, Bane said, speaking like a proud father. How do you get them off? Xana asked, her question an equal measure of curiosity and revulsion. I don't, Bane replied. This armor is permanent. Will I have to wear them too? She asked softly. Bane considered before replying. The obelisks give me great power, but there is a cost. The physical demands can be taxing. It would be too much for you to bear as a child. Maybe too much for you to ever bear. Relieved, Xana only nodded. Her master seemed to be almost fully recovered now, though his face and armor were still drenched in blood. She noticed him looking past her at the Starwick on the far edge of the clearing. I stole the ship, she told him. I... I had to kill the crew. You did what was necessary to achieve your goal, Bane said. You showed the power and the strength of will to destroy those who stood in your way. You saw what you wanted, and you took it, no matter what the cost. You acted like a Sith. The young girl felt a surge of pride well up within her. What happens now, Master? Now, your real training will begin, Bane said, marching off toward the Starwake. She quickly fell into step behind him. The doubts and fears she'd experienced during her time alone on the ship were gone, swept away by the words of her master and the display of raw power she'd witnessed. No longer was she afraid or uncertain about her future. She finally accepted who and what she truly was. 
She was the chosen apprentice of Darth Bane. She was the heir to the legacy of the dark side. And she was the future dark lord of the Sith. Now, Bane comes to Xana's rescue. The Drexel that Bane is riding snatches the dude that was doing all the talking, flies him up in the air, and drops him to his death. Very messed up way to die, in my opinion. I wouldn't want to die that way. So the others run up and jump on their Drexels. It is three people on one of the Drexels, and their Drexels are smaller than Bane. So this causes their Drexels to be slower. But they are experienced riders, and there's three Drexels to Bane's just one. But Bane's Drexel is commanded by the Force, so it gives him an advantage. Bane takes one of the Drexels out real quick. Well, Bane's Drexel takes one of them out real quick. Now the other two attack Bane's Drexel, causing all of them to plummet to the ground in a giant explosion of death. They hit the ground so hard that and knocked Xana off of her feet. Dust is flying everywhere. Xana was probably thinking that Bane was dead until he walks out of the dust cloud. He has survived Hell Sidious. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It just comes out. I can't help it. But Bane covered in blood and dust had survived. And the power that helped him survive, Xana knew one day would be hers. And she was excited about that. So she runs up to Bane and this is when she sees the thing that's on Bane's chest. So Bane explains to Xana about the Orblet. Then she tells him about the ship and the crew. Bane praises her for acting like a Sith. When she asks what happens next, he tells her that her Sith training is about to begin. And they walk back to the ship. This is when Xana realizes that one day she would be the master. Sith rule! I'm sorry. I get excited when my brothers and sisters of the Sith win. Let's get to the next part. You sent for me, Master Valentine? Johan sent as he entered Farfalla's private quarters. It was three days after the Senate had passed the Rusan Reformation, and they were still on Coruscant. Johan was eager to leave the city world behind them, but after his shameful outburst in Chancellor Valorum's chambers, he was determined to show that he could control his emotions, and that he trusted in the wisdom of his master. As long as Farfalla felt they were needed here, he would serve without further complaint. Sit down, Johan, the Jedi Master said softly, pointing to a nearby chair. From his tone, it was clear he had bad news to deliver. Johan did as he was instructed, dreading what was to come. We've located the Starwake. For a brief instant, Johan's heart leapt. Sometime after he had left Ertana and her crew, their ship had gone missing. Search parties had been sent out but had come back with nothing. Now, nearly two weeks after she disappeared, she had been found. Then Johan's elation vanished when he realized that his master had specifically said the ship had been located. He'd made no mention of those aboard. What happened? Johan asked, almost too afraid to get the words out. We think it may have been mercenaries, Farfal explained. The ship was discovered floating in the Japrael sector, abandoned. Everything of value had been taken. Everyone aboard was dead. Shot with a blaster at close range. Everyone? Yurtana? Bordon? Even his sons? Farfalla could only answer with a solemn nod. There is no emotion, Johan thought, reciting the Jedi Code as he fought to control the sudden burst of anger that flared at their senseless deaths. There is only peace. I know this is difficult for you to accept, Farfalla said taking a seat across from Johan so he could face him. But there is nothing we can do for them now. And whatever happens, you must not take it upon yourself to try to avenge their deaths. I understand, Master, Johan said, choking back tears. 
Yet I cannot stop myself from grieving for their loss. Nor should you, my young Padawan, Farfalla said, giving him a reassuring pat on the knee before rising to stand. It is only natural that you feel sorrow over what has happened. Grief alone holds no danger. Farfalla stepped away to the far side of the room and studied a painting on the wall, giving the young man some privacy and allowing him time to collect himself. When Johan stood a few minutes later, his master turned to face him again. This news sits heavy upon my heart, Master Valentine, the young man offered. But I understand that it is not my place to seek out their killers. And I am grateful you brought me here to tell me. That is not the only reason I sent for you, Farfalla admitted. I have a mission for you. Tell me, Master. I am ready to serve. Johan thought that truer words had never been spoken. He was desperate for something, anything, to take his mind off thoughts of Irtana and her crew. The Senate has passed the Rusan Reformations. You already know what this means to our order. But there are many other aspects to this legislation. As Chancellor Valorum has said, the Republic must be reborn. Johan nodded to show he understood. There will be many people across the galaxy who are opposed to this new legislation. Farfalla continued. Some see Valorum's efforts to reunite the Republic as an attempt to reestablish Senate control over worlds that have declared their independence, or worlds that were just about to. You fear for the Chancellor's life, Johan guessed. Precisely. And I also feel it is important for the Jedi to show our support for the Chancellor and the Rusan Reformations. We must take a leading role in protecting him from those who would do him harm. Johan struggled to keep his emotions under control. Farfalla had said he had a special mission for him. Maybe he was sending him to the Outer Rim territories to infiltrate a radical separatist movement, or deploying him to the front lines of a battle against some dangerous rebel faction. I have chosen you to serve as the Jedi representative among Chancellor Valorum's personal guard. Farfalla continued, and Johan felt as if he'd been punched in the gut. The last thing he wanted was to stay on Coruscant, and now he'd been condemned to remain here until the end of the Chancellor's term, plus four more years if the Chancellor won his bid for a second term. You seem upset, Johan. Not upset, Master, the young man answered carefully disappointed. This was not what I was hoping for. Our order is sworn to serve. Often, we must sacrifice what we most value for the good of others. This is what it means to be a Jedi. Johan felt no desire to argue the point. As usual, his master was right. If this was his duty, if this was the role he was asked to serve, then he would not only accept it, but embrace it. Master Valentine, I humbly accept this great honor you have given me. I will serve Chancellor Valorum with all my heart and spirit, to the best of my abilities. It gives me great pleasure to hear you accept your fate so willingly, Johan. Farfalla answered with a mischievous smile. But there is still one more small matter. I will have to leave Coruscant in the next few days to attend to other business. As you can imagine, this is a difficult time for our order. Of course, Master. 
But you must understand that I cannot leave a Padawan here on Coruscant, unsupervised. It was true. All Padawans were required to be under the constant care and watchful eye of a Jedi Master until they completed their training. I'm afraid I don't understand. If you're leaving, then what new Master will I serve? I think your period of service is over, my young Jedi. For a moment, Johan just stood there, unable to wrap his mind around what he'd been told. Only when he realized Farfalla had used the honorific Jedi instead of Padawan did it become clear. You mean, I am to be knighted? That is precisely what I mean, Farfalla confirmed. I have met with the Council and they agree that you are ready. Involuntarily, Johan's hand dropped to brush against the hilt of his lightsaber. He had constructed it on Rusan, at Hoth's insistence, only weeks before his first master's death. He realized the general must have been preparing him for this moment even then. However, building a lightsaber was only one step on the path to Jedi knighthood. What about the trials? Johan asked, trying to contain himself. I must still pass the final tests of the council. I have spoken with them about this too. And they agree that you have already proven yourself many times over during your service on Rusan. Assigning you to the Lorem's Guard was your final test. In accepting the position as you did, you have demonstrated beyond all doubt that you are willing to sacrifice your own wants and desires for the greater good. I, I don't know what to say, Master, the young man stammered. You earned this, Johan, Farfalla assured him. General Hoth would be proud. The Jedi Master's lightsaber appeared in his hand, igniting with a clean, crisp hum. Johan bowed his head and turned it slightly to one side. Farfalla flicked his wrist, and the lightsaber sliced away the dangling apprentice's braid. The young man felt the weight of it tumbling away as it fell to the floor, then raised his head with tears in his eyes. He was unable to speak, his mind still swirling with all that had happened. His ascension to the rank of Jedi Knight, his posting to Valorum's guard, the tragic news of Ertana and her crew. You will forever look back on this day as one of great joy, but also one of great sorrow, Farfalla told him, offering one final piece of advice. It will help you to remember that in life, the two are often closely linked. I will remember, Master, Johan vowed, realizing that for the first time, he was offering his word not as a Padawan, but as a true Jedi Knight. Okay, now it jumps to the Jedi again. And I have noticed that during the Jedi part, it gets boring as, I'm not going to say it, but in my opinion, it does. It gets boring. Farfalla tells Johan that they found our time to ship and that the entire crew were all dead. Johan starts to cry. Then Farfalla tells Johan that he has a mission for him. He would be protecting the Chancellor. Johan doesn't seem too happy about this. Then he takes his new mission with humility. But an apprentice must stay with his master. Johan reminds his master that he has not taken his trials. Farfalla tells him that his trials were already taken on Rusan. Then he ignites his lightsaber and cuts the braid from Johan's head. Okay, I would not be okay with my master putting his lightsaber close to my head. That would freak me out. Just don't be putting lightsabers close to my head. It's not a good idea. Daravid moved with a slow but steady pace across the cracked soil of the sun-baked field. His left hand clutched a walking stick, 
while the stump where his right had been was wrapped in heavy bandages. A hovering bouncer matched his pace on either side. Their round bodies bobbed along like a pair of furry green balloons tethered to his shoulders. They had wide, soulful eyes, but no visible nose or mouth. Their long, flat tails streamed out behind them like ribbons, fluttering on the breeze. The bouncers had first come to him in the cave, where he had lain for days in a near-catatonic state. Huddled and clutching at his maimed limb, he had given up all hope. When they found him, he had wanted nothing more than to die. The compassionate, telepathic creatures had circled above him, speaking directly to his mind, offering words of comfort and assurance. They had soothed his troubled spirit, and though they could not heal his wounds, they were able to ease his physical pain. They had guided him safely out of the underground tunnels and back up to the bright sun and fresh air of the surface. They had led him to a grove where he found cool water to slake his thirst and sweet berries to sate his ravenous hunger. They'd even shown him where to find an abandoned cache of medical supplies so he could properly clean and dress his amputated stump to stave off infection. For several days, the young man had stayed hidden at the bouncer's grove gathering his strength and recovering from his terrible wound. He was too afraid of being recognized as one of the Sith to seek out others of his own species, too ashamed by his actions and his mutilated limb to face others of his own kind. But more powerful than either his fear or his shame was his rage. Rain had taken his hand. His own cousin had betrayed and maimed him. Thoughts of vengeance and retribution consumed him. Images of hunting her down and destroying her filled his restless dreams. Yet as his body began to heal, his anger began to fade. Desperate to cling to his hatred, he had replayed the encounter with Rain over and over in his mind, only to have the truth suddenly dawn on him. Rain had been trying to save him. Surrounded by the gentle bouncers and their calming presence, Darovit was finally able to understand what she had done. The Sith at her cousin's side would have killed him without a second thought. By crippling him, Rain had spared his life. A final act of mercy before she fell under the sway of her new dark side master. And with understanding came acceptance. Darovit's hand was gone. Rain was gone. His dreams of joining the Jedi or the Sith were gone. All he had left were the bouncers. Daravid was grateful for their kindness, but he couldn't understand why they had helped him. Perhaps it was because everyone else was gone. The Sith were destroyed, their minions had fled the world or been taken away as prisoners of war. The Jedi and Republic soldiers serving in the Army of Light were all gone. Two nights earlier, he'd seen the telltale flicker of ships making the jump to hyperspace in the starry sky as their fleet had left orbit. Even those who lived on Rusan had gone back to their farms and villages, abandoning the sight of the great battle between the darkness and the light. For several days now, he had seen no living creature other than the bouncers who had saved him. He understood that they had given him a second chance at life. He could put his past behind him and start again. But to what purpose? To what end? The bouncers spoke often of the future, as if they had some ability to see glimpses of what was to come. Like most oracles, however, they used words that were couched in vague riddles and generalities. 
words that offered him no clue to his own fate. Daravid Sand, one of the creatures projected into his mind. A statement, more than a question. I just don't know what I should do now. He answered out loud. While the bouncers could project their thoughts and empathically sense broad emotion in others, they weren't able to read minds. It was necessary to actually speak to carry on a conversation with them. What kind of future is there for me? He continued, giving voice to the problem he'd been struggling with internally. I failed as a Jedi. I failed as a Sith. What could I hope to become now? Man? The answer actually made him stop short. A man, he repeated. Not a Sith, not a Jedi. Not a mercenary, not a soldier. Not anything but a simple, ordinary man. He nodded and resumed his march across the empty, open field, feeling as if a great weight had been lifted from him. Just a man. Why not? So in one chapter, it jumped from the Sith to the Jedi to now Dervik. And he is still alive and on Rusan. And he has come to the realization that Xana had saved his life because Bane would have killed him. So now he is trying to figure out what to do with his life. And that's where the chapter comes to an end. Overall, not a bad chapter. Has some action and has some suspense. What more could you ask for? Now let's get to the quote of this week. And it comes to us from Shannon L. Elder. And she said, one of the most important things you can do on this earth is help the people that spend their lives helping others. The laws of balance are always in motion. If you give, you have to receive. If you take, it will be taken. That's the way things work. Helping others means someone will help you. I talk a lot about reaching your dreams and goals. By helping somebody else reach their dreams and goals, the laws of balance sway in your faith. And someone has to help you reach your goal. Give and it shall be given back. Honestly, in my life, I have given more than I have received. But what I have received has led me to a place of joy and happiness in my life. I want all of you to know that joy and happiness because it is so satisfying. Okay, let me stop before I start tearing up. Join us next week as we cover Chapter 10. Hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Sway. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can find us and subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shit and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel, sound designed by Theodore Thompson, researched by Tammy Turner. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.